Today's Mocha Live podcast is all about identity, which if you live or work or spend substantial time in crypto art, you'll know is a pretty Catholic topic. Identity and how we choose to communicate ours is central to the successes and careers of basically everyone in this digital hyper online art movement. To interact with crypto art, one needs to make some important decisions up front. Like, do we share our names? What about our faces? Do we share facts about our lives, our spouses, our countries of origin? Or do we take the other route, the one of anonymity, total or partial? I can see the appeal. If nobody knows your name or anything about you, that's a lot of freedom and offers a lot of safety. That many in the past have used this anonymous position to take advantage of others has not stopped the trend from continuing. But behind this question of why do we want to embody ourselves behind digital or, or pseudonymous identities is the second question. Why, as enthusiasts and followers, are we so attracted to these kinds of figures? There's an appeal to individuals who we know only through the lens of their digital alter egos. Because really, what's the difference between Cosmo Medici and, I don't know, Goku, Punk6529 and SpongeBob SquarePants? In both cases, we know them only as animated characters, only conceivable through the very specific lens of their identifiable actions. On top of that, recurring digital characters like, I don't know, the monsters created by Xcopy, these are an important part of much sought after crypto art, these motifs that we recognize and identify with and which afterwards become woven into an artist's fabric. Now, whether this stems from our collective history with animation or our penchant for escapism, perhaps, that's unclear. But maybe it's something more, something integral to the kinds of freedoms that digital identity permits. Permits not only to the creator of an identity, that is, but to us as well. A dense topic indeed, but we have a fearless guide to help us get through it today. Joining Colborn and I is 3D artist Nicole Ruggiero, just three doxxed friends talking identity, or lack thereof. So please take a load off and take a listen to this week's Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody. It is five o'clock Eastern time. Uh, My name is Max Cohen. It's a beautiful day here in Boston, Massachusetts. I am joined on this week's Mocha Live podcast by a couple of really cool folks joining me, which he hasn't in a couple of weeks, but we're really psyched to have him back. And by that, I mean, I'm really psyched to have him back. Founder of the Museum of Crypto, Colborn Bell. What's up, Colborn? Good to be here. Thanks, Max. And then uh, joining us for the first time, but hopefully not the last time, uh, the wonderful 3D artist, Nicole Ruggiero. What's up, Nicole? How are we doing? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, I'm wonderful. Just before we got on, we were expounding on the positives and negatives of various West Coast cities, and we're going to take a decidedly different <laughs> tact as we lead into the uh, conversation we have before us today. So uh, in trying to kind of think about what we wanted to talk about today, I asked Nicole for some ideas and to kind of dwell on some things. And one of the things she mentioned was the importance of video games and animation and like uh, those kinds of characters to her development as a person and an artist. And that's something that I deeply identified with as a card carrying fan of video games, my entire life and anime and animation of all kinds, you know, it comes through very powerfully in your work, Nicole, with uh, all the characters you've created named like fish and 3d internet. And then in like a crown series, which is such a characterized personified version of emotion. So uh, it's obviously really powerful to you. And uh, before we go any further, I'd love to just know, kind of what your history has been with animated or 3D characters. Like where did that first 
where did that love first kind of emerge from? So it really started when I was like super, super young, like a little, little kid. I was like obsessed with animated anything. Like I remember when I was like really little, I was like, I don't want to watch real people shows or movies. Like I would only watch animated, you know, movies and shows and stuff like that. Um, And then probably when I was like, I don't know, like seven, eight-ish, I got like really obsessed with Pokemon. So that was my, like my introduction to anime. And then I think from there, I got really into like manga, like in like middle school. And like, I remember uh, Ranma one half was a big one, Chobits and uh, the video game Kingdom Hearts. I was like obsessed with all this stuff and I was like drawing characters from uh, a lot of like the manga or especially like Kingdom Hearts. I, I just like loved all the characters. And then from that, I got into Final Fantasy, which I'm still really into. And I think like the depth of the characters, like when I was in middle school is what really continued to draw me into. Mm. Can you, what do you mean like the depth of the characters? If you don't mind expounding on that a bit. Okay, so I think like a a recent example that I can give and and talk about is a game like Final Fantasy VII. It's really cool how a lot of the characters have these really intricate backstories that are uh, really interlaced but slowly revealed throughout the game and throughout like any kind of content that they're making. I think like that is what I find to be like really really cool and interesting colburn you're a couple years older than me um and i know that so much of my i don't know childhood growing up in the uh, late 90s and the early 2000s like it seemed like there was a explosion of animation i'm wondering if you had like a similar kind of upbringing or a similar connection to animated characters that like nicole and i did i mean i was just obsessed right and i was <laughs> i remember being obsessed with the simpsons and then, you know, I think when I was five, I got a Super Nintendo. Uh, and from there, it was like all RPG games, right? It was like Chrono Trigger, Secret of Evermore, um, some, some Mario games for sure. Uh, but I remember kind of like those story-driven games just really being my favorite and then i remember when like the n64 came out and mario 64 came out and suddenly like everything was in 3d and instead of like the the side scroller games or like zelda uh a link to the past was a super i've like gone back and played all of these games super metroid and i think that's what it was it was like the depth of the character arc and the stories and i loved and Pokemon, of course, was huge at our school. So that idea of like going out into the world and like getting your people together and growing together and like doing the thing was really inspiring. I was I was definitely on that arc as well. You know, as I was thinking more about this topic, I was trying to think about not just why I've connected to these kinds of characters, but why not just and not just generationally either but especially within crypto art you know the sphere we all live and work in why there is this i feel like wider spread adherence and and kind of love for animated characters digital identities and things like that 
one of the first things I thought about is, well, these aren't people, right? And that means to an extent they're a lot less messy than people, right? We don't have to ascribe them personality traits or character traits that aren't directly codified in our experience of them, right? If you're playing Chrono Trigger and you know, the main character does X actions or um, you know, Sora in Kingdom Hearts, he acts a certain way. There is no before time. There is no after time. There is only what you're seeing. And I think that that's comforting in a sense. Um, and I see this in other kind of pop cultural spheres as well, whether it's like the gorillas who have managed to maintain real cultural relevance for almost 30 years now on the back of, I think, this kind of being an animated band, right? It's um, the gentleman from Blur, whose name I'm blanking on, Damien Albarn. But he's a background to these characters that never age, they never go out of style, they change their clothes, but they're unreal inherently. Uh, MF Doom, I think, has a similar kind of, or a similar, and, and had a similar kind of like career arc in that sense, never really aging, always kind of being uh, ageless in a sense. So I was trying to think about how this plays into the crypto art world in a couple of ways. And the first and most obvious to me was the draw of PFPs, right? Which provided people and mass who use the internet quite frequently to inhabit their own digital identities in a really kind of profound way outside of the somewhat more rigid bounds of say like an RPG game where you might be making choices for your character, but you're not making choices for your character. This is pigeonholing your identity into a character. So first of all, Nicole, I'm curious, like what do you think the ability to inhabit a digital identity not only does to the person who is inhabiting that identity, but also to how they're being perceived? Jeez, this is like such a complex question yeah, and, sorry. and can be so, no, 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 it, it, it's okay. It's, it can be just so different for each person. Um, like you're mentioning musicians and bands, like it's, it's going to be different, like their characterization of, you know, their band than a, you know, crypto influencer who has like a punk or something versus like me, who I feel like. Uh, it's really fun for me as like a, a visual artist to inhabit like a lot of different characters and like, you know, create their like personalities and stuff like that. So I think the thing that all of this has in common is you're able as someone who is like basically creating the story, which like the bands are doing that, artists are doing that and influencers are doing that with their PFPs. You're starting with a blank slate, right? And you're able to kind of like, weave that story together. Colborn, I'm curious, you know, you've been, you're, I think, widely accepted as like an OG in the crypto art movement, especially on the collector side. And you have, I feel like, uniquely sidestepped the self-identification with a punk or a digital asset. I know you have a punk, but I'm curious why you never went down that route yourself. Uh, you know, I'm not so into like commodity fetishism and like, there was a point where I thought punks were cool. And then do I want to like stand for, you know, something that is owned by Yuga Labs that kind of carries some, you know, way vision values that I don't really like respect or want to represent. So suddenly, suddenly that thing in my mind lost its identity and it became more about the price tag than what it actually was about. Was there ever a time in which you were kind of identified with your punk or with another? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I was I definitely used the punk that was donated to the museum as a PFP for a little bit, and then you know, say what you will, but I I was using a funk for a while, 
I haven't heard that name in a long time. I know, I know. And then I was using, you know, I, w- I would use a bunch of different things. I had a, a Lulu XXX piece for a while of, of the person like putting the the mask on, like the bank robber mask. I never really understood PFPs because the goal for me was never to be like w- within a group among everybody else, but was to try and be like different and identify from everybody else to try and like separate each other through through arts. Well, I think there are certain, I mean, obviously there are certain effects, but there are certain perks that you get from being identified with a, a, a CryptoPunk or any kind of other digital asset, right? So I think Cosmo Medici is probably the most public version of this where there is no Cosmo Medici. The name itself is a pseudonym. The uh, recognizable face is a CryptoPunk. There is no person there except for the character. And I think it's really interesting how we interact with this individual, whoever they are, wherever they're from, when all the aspects of their personality, from how they speak, from how they present themselves online, it's all part of this impenetrable kind of charade. So Nicole, I'm going to throw it back to you, but do you think we as a whole in crypto art like react differently to individuals who we know only through the lens of a digital identity? Like what, what kind of perks do you think that confers upon the individual themselves? I mean, of course we do. Like this, this goes back like to, you know, the internet's like inception, you know, being anonymous on forums. There is, I think it almost feels like on unfair grounds in a way, because it's like, I'm here. This is who I am. This is who I am in person. You know what I look like, you know, my name. And I'm talking to someone who I don't know their name. I don't know uh, what they look like. It feels like there's like a, a power dynamic there that benefits the person who is anonymous. So my personal feelings on like interacting with anonymous people, um, if they're like, I, I would, I can say also that I have met some people who do conceal their identities, but like, they're like chill enough to be like, okay, we're like on a personal level. Like I'm going to let you know who I am. That feels more normal to me, obviously, uh, versus people who choose to remain completely anonymous. Like for me, my personal feelings on that, I I just feel like worry. Like what are the intentions? Why are they choosing to conceal their identity? I mean, of course there's going to be like speculation behind that as well. Like who are they? Like, where are they from? But it's also role-playing to an extent, right? I mean, you get to totally inhabit the character that you're in. And I think in the same sense that, you know, an animated character that you're watching doesn't possess a history or troublesome actions that you're not totally aware of by whatever narrative or artistry in which you're experiencing them, that I think that you kind of play a trick on yourself, right? Like these animated characters are totally heavily anesthetized, right? They don't have political beliefs. They don't have genitalia. They don't contribute to the patriarchy or to imperialism. They don't commit crimes. They are completely outside of the boundaries of the human experience in a way which I think to inhabit them is probably really believe in your own like magic, then it's probably pretty freeing um, being entirely self-contained within that like one frame of reference. Uh, I, I generally lean to what Nicole says, right? I kind of think back to the road that like crypto 888 people uh, took people down and like what Beanie Maxi did to people. And when you, have an anonymous voice you can be intentionally inflammatory without facing consequences right and you can like espouse viewpoints 
that may or may not have anything to do with like actual reality to incite and kind of game just put a, attention and spotlight on yourself. And I generally feel that people that do that don't do it for probably the best reasons. You know, I've I've seen you know, I don't I don't I don't ever know if there's like a healthy way to influence. It's I think just personally like really deleterious to people's health and mental well-being and i feel like giving i don't know in, in my mind it's it's like almost guilty until proven innocent because i have met incredible you know crypto art collectors in person who have been like oh like you know i am this person and it's like wow like i suddenly feel so much better and so much closer and we have so much kinship because we've had these online experiences but like if that connection is never made, then for me, it's just doubt. Well, it's not exclusively in the influencer sphere as well. Um, you know, Nicole, obviously like you're incredibly successful and a lot of that is on the backs of the characters that you've created and kind of the style that revolves around the creation of characters. And I think we see this with so many of the very sought after crypto artists and their work. Uh, I put together just like a small list, but like X copy, for instance, who has all these different characters that are identified with their work. Um, Pac, who doesn't have characters necessarily, but is itself or themselves this kind of digital floating anomalous identity, right? Uh, Tijo and other worlds both have these like the, they're kind of demonic stand-ins um, that appear again and again in their works. Um, Sam Spratt has the Lucy's and the skull of Lucy's. Claire Silver has this pink haired punk that whether in her minted work or her not minted work, it just shows up as this like motif again and again. Uh, Joaquina Salgado does this uh, quite often with her crypto baby character. So there seems to be a, on both the supply and demand side, not to use totally economic terms, but there seems to be a thirst and a drive by like for artists to create 3D characters or digital characters and kind of use them to embody some of themselves. Of course, anon the anonymity we've been talking about has something to do with this, but it's also something about iconography that I'd like to try and identify. So Nicole, I'm wondering, like, what do you think this greater trend says about, like, this shared ethos of crypto art? I, I mean, honestly, it's it's hard for me to say as the artist, because I think that's really on the collectors. I think people identify with art or PFPs, which honestly, to me, are two different, completely different things. But I know with my art, when people are identifying with it, they're usually, usually like kind of like ascribing their own feelings onto the art, which I love, you know, like I usually make a piece um, and it means something to me. And then when I put it out there, uh, it can mean something completely different to someone else. So if someone if a work of art makes someone feel something, you know, they might want to like take that and run with it. I guess it's just this like returning again and again to these similar kind of motifs and styles that interest me because I, I, in my very scant knowledge of art history, it's kind of rare for, you know, you obviously you see through the Renaissance art, like the depictions of Jesus and Mary and these kind of um, Christian figures being returned to again and again, but it's the creation of the figure and then returning to it as almost an emissary of the artwork. And like, back to you, Nicole, but, you know, when you create a character like 3D internet, you're putting it out into the work to be, or putting it out into the world rather, to be interpreted. But you're also 
I think, limiting the wide scope of that interpretation because of the recognizability of that character and the, you know, the kind of more specific context that that character's been in elsewhere. I guess that is a huge difference between like art and PFPs again. Like I feel like with PFPs, it is more of a like completely blank slate. I mean, you still have your history of like where punks came from or like where bored apes came from and like what the connotations with that are and like whether you like it or not, like that's still there, you know? You can say like, okay, this ape looks like this to me and I really like that. But then, you know, the community as a whole, you know, Yuga Labs and uh, their actions all reflect on to those PFPs still. I think that's inherent. So um, while it is like a, a blank slate, it is also, you know, you still have that that kind of thing too. I mean, same goes for like the iconography of like, you know, religion and the renaissance uh, you have like biblical stories and stuff and uh no matter how jesus is being depicted uh it's still jesus with the same story cobra what's your opinion on this from the collector side i mean personally i don't want like the actions of other people or a corporation to reflect on me and have some sort of presupposition as to how i am no but not necessarily with like the 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 punks or the bored apes and what that like the, the PFP side, but uh, I, like the art artist, art, I'm sorry, artistic side where these characters are reemerging again and again throughout like ouvoirs of an artist. I mean, I, I think the, like the pressures of our modern world necessitate a lot of this escapist fantasy driven, like assuming a character things are so beyond being, like black and white that it's almost like a return to simplicity so when i like yearn for that you know hero archetype whether it is like link from zelda or whether you know it was like in chrono trigger or you know there is um or even just like whatever like mario you know there's like a a story driven mission that like is clearly delineating good from evil right and i think people begin to probably you know there's there's probably a, a large fantasy element as to how that comes into play and you know and i'm sure it also is is escapist i have like something to say so you're like yeah it's like you know you have your good side and your bad side actually like so one of the like things that i really liked about like final fantasy 7 bringing it back to that is that the like good side with like Cloud and Tifa and Barrett Avalanche? They are trying to like save the planet, and they decide to blow up what is to this world like um, energy company, uh, like some of their equipment essentially, like large equipment, and that actually kills a lot of people and like innocent people and so they're labeled as eco-terrorists uh and while their like larger mission of like let's save the planet is good in some people's perspectives they're bad they're doing a really bad thing so i kind of like that the like humility of not being perfect in this like fantasy world um like that's what really really drew me into that story 
and I agree with you, Colburn. Like, we do need this escapism. Like, it, I used to be like really not so keen on escapism, but as I've you know, as we've all dealt with like the pandemic and the economy and like things just being tough, um, I've gotten more and let myself get more and more into these kind of like escapists ideas. But I did like that. It like drew me into this story more anyways with Final Fantasy seven. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, For me, that was like awesome. And I felt even more like absorbed. I think it's a weird metaphor, but I think somehow like the, the screenwriters guild and like the writer strike and the actor strike is almost symbolic of what is happening because, you know, the studio executives basically said like, we are not going to agree to anything strike as long as you want until you're, you have to sell like your apartment or home or you're so out of work and then you'll come back. Um, and I kind of feel like that is a bit of, like a larger extended metaphor for the world writ large. I think COVID was kind of like a shock to the system. And I, I know a lot of people that were, are like very disaffected in their capacity to provide like labor into this and increasingly exploited by people at the top who neither seem to care about like the status of humanity. So you know, you can get angry, but there's not really anybody to direct that anger at, and there's not real systems of capture for that. Or you can kind of get distant um, and disassociate. And I find, sadly, that more people are dissociated. I want to just push back on the idea that it's necessarily like something to avoid, because as a, uh, an oftentimes fiction writer, that's the gig, is that kind of focus disassociation whenever you're writing anything that's narrative driven right that's essentially what you're doing is you're i mean you're literally creating a character but uh, that's been set off by a lot of writers but you're like putting these little slivers of your soul into each of these characters and you know they may be facets of you that don't represent the wholeness of you or like an accurate representation of you but they're pretty much you in every situation and you're in a very specific circumstance in which you have detailed all of the context all the external surroundings all the histories so you are kind of sublimating that into the work itself i mean you're forced to right you read a book by tony morrison and you're going to be getting not just uh her and her incredible mind but you're getting all the context of her worlds that she is then like condensing down into the stories themselves and you get through that not only an idea of the artist but also of the era itself. I wonder, Nicole, and maybe you could help enlighten us more on this from the artistic side or the visual artistic side, but with this creation of the characters, with the creation of these characters who like exist in these worlds, like I know um, your character that you made with uh, Sam Clover, uh, Fish, right? Fish exists within this like platformer kind of good versus evil heightened New York City. So you are essentially doing what we've been talking about as well. You're creating a character, you're creating a context and you're seeing how they mesh and then kind of bestowing both with your own perspectives, with your own, I don't know how you would probably react in those circumstances. So I'm hoping you could, I don't know, kind of elaborate on my thought process a little bit, if you can discern it. <laughs> yeah. So I guess for that piece that you're referencing, that was a, a really interesting piece that Sam and I worked on because she was coming at it from a very 
disgruntled perspective of really disliking New York City and struggling with living here. And I was coming at it from the completely opposite perspective as someone who loves New York. Um, like, obviously, it's it's not an easy place to live at all. It's probably one of the hardest places to live in the U.S., at least. And it was, I think, that chaotic energy, like, from both sides, like, really added to... Uh, the uncovering of both the environment and and the the character. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting when you're talking about collaborations, right? And, and I was thinking this when you were speaking as well. Like when you're talking about books and authors, like it's one person that writes a book usually, right? Like almost all the time. With animation, you're usually working in like a huge team, and you might have like one creative director, but you know, it's usually like pretty collaborative, like within the team, Uh, everyone's kind of contributing. So I thought that was, that's kind of interesting as well, like looking at character development from that perspective of like creating a story by yourself, like writing a book or like through collaboration. I'll tell you, that's something that I've always just made me very envious and even sometimes hateful of visual artists is that the writing does come from a solitary place. I'm very jealous of people who get to collaborate in their artistry because I think that that so often brings about something that's so much greater. And then, you know, especially when you're writing like lengthy prose, sometimes screenwriters I know will collaborate. I have no idea how that process can actually like be accomplished on a workflow level. It seems insane to me, but it's very lonesome work and it's very, you know, you you only have your own perspective to trust in, which, you know, shows up again in, in the work itself. Yeah, I'm curious if there's any, like how this reflects into the nft space like are there any collaborative like anonymous like influencers or well i know i mean claire silver did a a collaboration with emmy Cusano recently um i don't necessarily remember the context but uh the work was pretty remarkable it was for christie's gucci auction there's that i mean i know like x copy although it's not quite a collaboration as much as it is like an authorization there's all sorts of you know, unauthorized um, collaborations with Xcopy. I mean, Teji did that one months ago that pissed everybody off because Teji didn't announce that it was not. I think they said that it was a collaboration when it was more like taking inspiration or taking actual assets from Xcopy's work. So that's a good question. Colburn, what do you think? Or do you have any ex- other examples? Oh, I, I mean, I think the, the Math Castles team who did Terraforms are two anonymous people and they've seemingly remained incredibly anonymous Hakatau as well I, I mean I think that like they're not quite as stringent about their anonymity but I mean I know that it's definitely like a team of people who are working together Twisted Vacancy as well um, I believe Twisted Vacancy at least at certain points has been like a large group of people um, working under the same moniker unless my sources are uh, totally that incorrect one, that one's a little different <laughs> that, fair enough but... <laughs> It's really interesting to think about, like, even the people who we view as individuals through their PFPs might be, like, joint accounts or, like, a company. Mm-hmm. Like, who knows? So that's that's something something interesting to think about, too. Well, it's like if you ever read, like, uh, biographies or autobiographies from, like, sports figures, oftentimes it's, you know, the name of the person in huge letters and then, like, the ghostwriter in, like, tiny little letters or not, you know, 
recognized at all. So even if you're reading something and of course your perspective as you're reading it is, oh, this is coming from that one mind. It's the process of, or the um, output of this process of writing that we have this kind of very fixed singular individual idea of, well, it may still also come from collaborations. And of course the higher profile person that is writing this biography, this autobiography or memoir or whatever, you know, there's publicists being thrown in there. There's editors, there's agents. If you ever take a look at literally any book at the back and there's an acknowledgements, the shit goes on for two pages, thinking every reader, every editor, every agent who is along the way, the cover designer, like all of these people have little says in what the thing itself is. Um, it's why the editor-in-chiefs of newspapers are so important, right? Because while they're not writing all the pieces themselves, so much of their perspective is entering into the pieces by din of what they're taking out, what they're prioritizing, what they're the kind of notes they're sending back to the writer and saying, okay, we're actually, I'd like you to focus more on this. So the thing becomes, it's like a representation of the person, Jan Werner, the editor-in-chief, the famous editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone for ages. Like, I don't believe Jan wrote very many articles at all, um, but that era is defined by his kind of influence on the direction of everything from the top. So, I mean, maybe this is the nature of artistry in general, that, we're, we always like to fetishize the idea of the single tortured genius who's creating the work or the single inspired genius who's creating the work. But there's always, you know, a cloud of influencers and influences behind them. I agree. Yeah. It always takes a village, right? The thing is, is you can't, you know, even when those people produce those Academy Award winning films, you know, give them five minutes on stage, they'll never be able to thank everybody. Right. But somebody's got to hold the award and somebody's got to win. So I don't know. Like, it's just it's not fair. The world isn't fair. Well, and maybe that's why it's so interesting to have these 3D characters. You know, I, I was watching a clip from One Piece the other day um, of Monkey D. Luffy, the, you know, the protagonist. And in the context of this conversation of course that character how they look how they talk how they have been written their story arc obviously all of that is the condensed brain power and effort of hundreds of people right ideators writers animators voice actors all of it right illustrators there's tons more people than we could ever possibly know go into creating that one character but then on the back end or on the rather the experiential end Colborn, maybe this is back to what you were saying about the escapism from the complexity of life into these more kind of simplistic molds. The character itself seems so easy, right? There it is. There's the one person with their one history and their set of character traits. When in reality, it is the product of this unknowable, intensely complex process, right? But it emerges out into the world in this digestible package that we can identify with. And obviously that's going to be identifiable, identifiable and, and uh, appealing if, as to anyone who has the same kind of like escapist mindset, even if it's kind of more subtext and subconscious. I think like conversely to even when things aren't clear, people like to kind of like dig through the lore and figure out like what is canon and what's not, you know, and like really attach themselves to like the bits and pieces they can like kind of like find and discover. I think that's like a big part of this is like discovering parts of a story that might not be immediately legible, you know, especially like in video games or in anime. 
you know, reading like the subtext of like, oh, like the main character said this, but then the side character acted like this, like, uh, like about this, like, you know, situation, like, what does that mean? You know, and, and inferring kind of like how that might link into uh, actions that they take later on. I think that like, that's a really big draw for people as well like being able to like escape into the complexity of that yeah i I get and you know it's it's ironic to an extent right because the animated character has the ability to both be a distillation of its upbringing but also a condensation of whoever's experiencing it so all of these wonderful um like character driven artists that i've mentioned before the incredible and endless complexity of how those characters actually came to fruition, not just in terms of the technical prowess, but like the influences that went into it, it emerges in the form of this one figure. And then we are able to impress upon it ourselves as much of our own perspective, as much of our own history on it as possible. And it's kind of all coagulating around this conduit figure. Um, Whether that is a digital identity, like a Cosmo or whether it's like a character like 3d internet or whether it's, you know, cloud from final fantasy seven his friends right it's this kind of i don't know meeting place in like a spiritual sense between what the process of creation was and now what the process of experience was um i'd like to just switch gears really quickly and ask a question that i'm sure is on everyone's mind um and that is if we knew what ben dadith looked like would people be as willing to mindlessly send him eth colborn yeah i holly doxed him you didn't see what he looks like? Oh, no. Ollie doxed him. Uh, can we describe his identity without being cruel? Uh, that The answer might be no. Uh, I don't even <laughs> really want to go there. No, I mean, it, it was... It was more uh, a thought experiment than a legitimate reflection of his. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I know. mean... Uh, <laughs> look, I don't know. You want to do, do stupid shit like that? It's like you want to go buy shit coins. You want to go invest in like these characters and it's just like so so mindless that it's hard to even believe that it is real but even the shit coins that people invest all have characters behind them can i interrupt for a second i missed this whole drama like what happened (laughs) like broadly people have been so bored right and they're so degenerate and they're so in the crypto thing that when it's like peak bear market they resort to like the lowest common denominator, which is just like creating a garbage token, marketing it as much as they can. Whoever is in first and earliest, like gets some meteoric rise and then everybody just gets dumped on. And, you know, but again, the people who've done this, like Ben Dadith or like Polly, like they have avatars in front of them. Like, I think that that is an important fact here and the other tokens that have done well whether it's that i never remember the name the sonic shiba harry potter token that has a character attached to it pepe character attached to it so what is it about attaching some kind of a character whether it's the proffer of that token or the mascot of it what is that why is that so damn appealing to so many people so frequently I have no answer. It's like it's like why do you, why did I go out last night and buy the ticket for the one point whatever five billion dollar jackpot? You know, yeah, but you don't it, think if there was like a little lottery mascot named like Lottery 
Larry Lottery. Larry Lottery. <laughs> Let's go with that one. That it would inspire for some reason more, uh, I don't know, identification. I mean, symbology is, of course, important, right? Iconography is incredibly important, right? So look at the way the iconography is trending. And you generally, I think, find that it is trending towards the absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pepe is, of course, a wonderful icon because it it can inhabit so many forms, right? And it it has inhabited so many forms that it had to like be reclaimed from all the terrible forms that it inhabited. Um, that's the nature of like the ever shifting digital and like this landscape is more and more, I think there is a detachment of reality. So people need these things to cling onto. Right. I still love to go back and watch like old Simpsons episodes. I have watched like cowboy bebop, a hundred times through again and again, I find that there is comfort in when things are moving so fast and everything that there is that thing that is known and understandable and relatable. And I think, you know, people used to find that in community within themselves, but I feel like the, the, those community structures have largely broken down. So they get replicated in digital places with these icons. Nicole, this is a slightly different topic or a slightly different like direction, but you create 3d characters, but you are not a 3d character yourself. You present yourself with a name and a person. Why not just be 3d internet? That's a really good question. And I actually used to for NFTs, yeah, probably before 2020-ish, I used to be really proud of the fact that how I presented myself digitally was how I was IRL. Like, I was really into being very genuine. And now, not that I'm not genuine, but I find myself being more private. Uh, and I do think that is a direct reaction to being, honestly, part of the NFT space. Because so many people are, you know, anonymous and very private. I feel like I have, in a way, done so almost like as like protection for myself. And I've kind of like personified, uh, you know, 3D internet as how I would want to present myself as like kind of just like a fun character with like maybe um traits that like i don't even inhabit but like i find fun to put out there but yeah again like having that kind of separation has become extremely important to me uh another part of this too it's not only nfts that influence this uh almost not even completely conscious decision uh only something that i've begun reflecting on more recently is kind of the dissolution of like social media platforms like I feel like back when I was very present in presenting myself pre-2020 social media was a totally different place I mean when I when my account started doing really well on Instagram I think we still had like a chronological timeline on there right like it was just very 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 different the way we interacted with people, 
uh, was very different. There weren't ads and we weren't worried about, you know, these companies using our data. I mean, maybe a little bit, but like, I don't think we knew what that really meant back then, you know, um, and it wasn't so scary. So another huge part of this, so I guess this is like a two-parter, uh, is, you know, these companies, these large companies, uh, you know, Meta, Twitter, X, whatever you want to call it, using all of our information, how we act online for their own benefit and also like serving that to us. I've, I've really, I have like two parts of myself, if not more than that, you know, one part that's very private now and that I share with like close friends and family. And then another part that is, you know, how I present myself online or through, you know, various characters, whether that's 3D internet or any of the other characters that I've created. And I think that's like extremely important for my mental health, honestly. I resonate with, I just resonate with that a lot. You know, I also, you know, I was somebody that like never had social media that wanted to exist IRL and then coming into this space, uh, it for sure was about like reforming identity, but then like almost like the idea of being a collector turned against you. Like I was never into the collect, I was into the innovating, you know, and that's always but then you kind of get like sucked into these new systems and, and then you feel exploited. So almost like that projection of what is online can't even really relate to the authentic self anymore. And that is pretty difficult. And I think, I think we just continue to see more and more of that, whether it's like in politics or in like how people are packaged and put into commercials and advertisements and, and these different things, people, people as products. And I think it's kind of just like collectively eating away at humanity. You know, if, if anyone read my, my essay last year, um, a brief history of virtual values, I talk about the day that I got social media for the first time. I remember everything about that day. I remember the color of the carpet. I remember where I was. I remember what, like, it's, it's so crystalline, right? That moment where the personality was suddenly schismed into a digital and a, a physical world. It was so attractive to me at the time. I am a talker, obviously, and I am, uh, I probably talk too much about, I'm, I'm probably too non-private. Um, I'm too uh, forthcoming, but social media was such a wonderful gift to me because suddenly I could be forthcoming with an audience that was omnipresent, right? I didn't have to see them, but I knew they were there. Um, I've never been very good at the privacy thing personally. Um, I've definitely like felt the effects of that, but I like, wait. So what was like, I, I kind of want to hear this story. What, what was the first social media you had and like, like how old were you and what was this? I was 12 years old. I was on a friend. It was in a friend's house. Um, he rarely had his like his parents around, which was very different than my house where my parents, my mom was a stay at home mom. So there was always like an authority figure around. It was very like no nonsense that was not sanctioned. And I would go to this friend's house and it was like, let's go smoke skate, um, smoke cigarettes and uh, like do skateboard tricks behind the regal cinemas and like walk across the highway to go get tacos, like, you know, crazy shit. 
And he was like, hey, do you want to make a MySpace? And then we made a MySpace. And then he was like, do you want to make a Facebook? And I was like, sure. That's what like all the high school kids do. And then suddenly I had a MySpace and I had a Facebook. And there I was fractured into three parts just like that. And obviously didn't realize how momentous it was at the time. But in hindsight, just again, by the end of the crystalline nature of that memory, on some level, I knew how important it was. But we got to start wrapping up here. I have a rapid fire question for each of you. Um, so, Nicole, I'm going to start with you. Um, what comes first, the character's appearance or their name? Oh, definitely their appearance. Like, absolutely. Sometimes, it, like, I have such a hard time with the names. It takes, like, even when the character's done, it'll take me, like, another few weeks to think of that. So, follow-up rapid-fire question. What's the process of naming one of those characters like? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes it comes to me, and I'm like, that's great. Other times I have to go through like a thesaurus or something and like look at different words. And I don't know. It really just depends. Okay. Good answer. Colborn, rapid fire question. How would your journey through NFTs be different? Do you think if you had used punk 6926 as you and not Colborn Bell as you? Whoa. Maybe we should just do a podcast about that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I, it, I, I hope it wouldn't be different. Right. I, I remember making and originally I was anonymous. My, you know, my collector name is Codeine Cups. And there was a, a, a real market point where we chose to go public. Right. And that was because I think we thought that it, it deserved a, a, somebody taking it on publicly. Right. I think that was the whole point of the museum. There were not any public people as collectors and the whole point in starting the project was to like say this is it's okay you know and this is like legitimate and we're people and we're gonna like get through this together and we don't have to be anonymous so i don't know i i don't think it would have worked i don't think it would have worked as well i want to just as a last point touch on one thing you said and i think it was just something you like a subconscious thing you said which is we don't have to be anonymous and i think for me personally, I feel I am so much freer by not having to be anonymous, by getting to be me, Max Cohen, by getting to do these podcasts and having people see my face and hear my voice and having that kind of just be out in the open for people to experience, not hiding behind something or not always kind of, I don't know, being worried that I've overshared something, just assuming that I've overshared something. Um, I find that very freeing. Um, this has been a really cool conversation. We should definitely come back and, and do something about it again. Uh, cause obviously this is a deep topic. Um, Nicole, any last thoughts before we get out of here? Um, I guess just that I Colborn, I think that's awesome first. Uh, and second, like, yeah, it's, it's nice talking to you guys because I, also, I play with the idea of, like, should I have made, you know, like, a moniker for myself? Like, I, like obviously, I go by my name. Uh, and that has not ever been a problem until more recently where I've been like, this feels a little weird. But it's only in spaces like this that I do feel more comfortable. And I'm like, okay, I'm talking to people. I feel chill. Like, I've hung out with you guys IRL. Like, it's, this is nice. And I hope that we see more of this, I think, is, is what I'm trying to say. Nice for me too. Um, I always get nervous before we record these podcasts and I come on and I see everyone's smiley faces and I'm like, oh, what's there to be nervous about? Um, Colborn, any last words before we uh, shove off? 
I just think that's like such a cool point, you know? I would prefer that we just like continue to show up as human beings and like both the good and the bad and, and hopefully we can just like smile and get through these things because one, it's, it's fucking really tough right now for a lot of people and there's so much bullshit online that it makes it like really noisy and tough to be human. So, you know, I would love to just encourage everybody to feel free to explore these identities and these characters and, and all of these wonderful things, but also feel free to kind of just sit in and be their imperfect selves as well. 56 minutes into this podcast and we come to the first lesson of every first grade <laughs> class in the world, be yourself. Amen. Amen. Well, this has been another fun-filled episode of the Mocha Live podcast. We're getting out of here at 5.57 p.m. Uh, I had a really good time. Nicole Colburn, I hope you did too. Please remember to like. I guess don't like. Uh, you could like. But more importantly, subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to our Substack, museumofcrypto.substack.com. Uh, read our shit on Medium. We got a fundraiser fucking blowout coming uh, towards the end of this month. Colburn, you want to reveal anything about it? You want to say anything about it? Or do you want to just leave the mystery intact? I mean, it's going to be cool. The The dev team got the final artwork pins live to IPFS. It's a giant mosaic. It's going to be sold as an open edition. If anybody wants to contribute further, you know, they can create a work that can be burned for that open edition. Um, and we're going to do, you know, 24-hour live stream, kind of a week of programming. And then the idea is to build, a, you know, a pool of funds that can kind of be like a a common governance pool for artists in the space to begin to support each other and other projects. And maybe this can continue to be like a decentralized way in which artists support and do different projects together. I've been trying for a week to figure out a way to say exactly that in like a comprehensive and condensed package. And you just did it in 40 seconds, waving your arms around off the top of your head. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's inspired. I'll have our moments. Uh, anyways, We'll be back next week, Wednesday at 5 p.m., same bat time, same bat channel. Please join us again then. Uh, otherwise, have a lovely night, everyone. Thanks for uh, being with us today. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast was produced by me, Max Cohen. It featured intro music by Day Fox, as well as theme music by Julian Brangold.